This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 585. And the quote of the day is, the small pieces are what make up the big picture. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 585 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I am so happy that you're here. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. And I saw a couple of people left some reviews on iTunes uh, within the last couple of weeks. I really, really appreciate that as well. It's weird because I can't comment on those uh, reviews and ratings and things like that. So if you've ever left a rating or a review, thank you. I appreciate it. And if you haven't, please do. Just head over to iTunes. You can do it pretty quickly. It takes about a minute. You just go in, you rate it with one to five stars, and then you can write your comment in there. And like I said, it takes about a minute and it just lets people know that that this is a good podcast that they should be checking out. So if you do that, I'd appreciate it. And also thanks for all the feedback for all of the, the most recent episodes. I just, I've been getting a ton of emails and comments and DMs and things like that about the Steve Jordan interview and the Tony Royster Jr. and the Omar Hakeem one. And now we're following suit with another amazing conversation with Daniel Platzman from Imagine Dragons. And this is what kind of person Daniel Platzman is. He recorded this episode with me and then it turns out after we recorded it that it didn't record so i emailed him and i said listen i apologize but the whole conversation that we just had did not get recorded it said that it was recording the red light was blinking and all of that and it didn't record it's the first time in 585 episodes that it's ever happened it happened one other time but that was totally my fault i did it with stanton moore backstage at the electric factory in philly and i had a new recorder and i thought it was recording but it wasn't recording but this was something different this actually said that it was recording and it wasn't so this is the first time it's ever happened i emailed him i was embarrassed i said i'm sorry and uh he was very very kind and said well let's just do it again so this is part two or or take two of the conversation with daniel platzman so a huge shout out to him for taking the time to do another episode with me so i'm not going to waste any more time let's get into it with daniel platzman Daniel Platzman, how are you, man? Great, man. How's it going? Good to be here. <laughs> uh, it's good. I, I feel like we're having deja vu. I want to let everyone know before we start this this conversation that Daniel and I already did this once, and we had an amazing conversation for about an hour and a half, and then I realized for some reason it did not record. And Daniel was gracious enough to come back on the podcast. So here we are for version two, version so two, back. episode one. <laughs> better, better than ever. <laughs> We're better than ever. Yeah. Now we have a lot more context though. So, uh, That's right. So, you know, but I really do. Uh, I want to publicly thank you for, for coming back on. Um, so we, we talked about before, talk, talk to me a little bit about, about growing up and, the influences that were going on for you in your life that drew you to music in the first place? Sure. Um, uh, yeah, I, I grew up in a musical family, uh, even though neither of my parents is a 
professional musician. Uh, music was actually the way they met doing musical theater uh, back in college. So um, uh, my dad's from a uh, chamber music family. Like his, his dad played violin and uh, he plays piano. And so there's all this piano violin music in the house. And uh, I actually started playing violin when I was four. And uh, he, you know, encouraged uh, sight reading and got to the point both with me and my brother uh, of playing chamber music with us growing up. And that was that was a big part of my childhood. So um, uh, that that in a roundabout way led me to playing drums uh, when I got older and kind of wanted to venture off into different types of music. And uh, that uh, that chamber music, uh, classical music background, uh, I think I'm, I'm so grateful for. Um, it, every time an adult told me as a kid, you know, one day you'll thank us for making you practice this <laughs> this thing, they they actually were all right. And, right. Uh, I am very grateful. <laughs> Reluctantly, you have to tell all of them that they were right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Why violin at that young of an age? Uh, actually I started piano uh, a year earlier. My first memories when I'm three and, uh, I actually do a piano lesson with my dad, but it was very chill. It was just him, uh, playing a, a chord and, uh, he would, it was like kind of like ear training. He would, he would have me mm -hmm. sing, uh, the root of the chord and, and it was right. only for like a couple minutes. And then it was like, go play Nintendo again. That's fine. Right. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think, um, even though I liked piano, there was something, um, a little too finite about it. Like, uh, when you hit that note, that's kind of it. Um, mm -hmm. as opposed to violin, uh, or guitar or, uh, you know, wind instruments, like you can, you can put vibrato on the note, you can bend it, you can, you have options, but the piano, it's like, once you strike the note, like that's that. And, right. uh, I think there was something about violin that I was drawn to of, uh, just how many options I had in the moment. Uh, of expression and I dug that and I think that's kind of similar about drums too I mean yes when you when you strike the drum that's that but you also have drum rolls you also have like scraping stuff um, I don't know there, there's a lot more uh, then you have uh, you know all those false harmonics on the cymbals where you put the stick right. the 90 degree angle uh, you can't really I mean I guess you can open the piano up and, and, and get real scrapey in there and Maybe I, was, maybe I just wasn't strong enough to lift the lid at such a young age. Who was the piano player that would that would always like put his hands? Uh, maybe you don't know this, but I remember watching videos of a piano player, and I forget who it was, but he would always like be inside the piano, and he was like grabbing the you know grabbing the tines and like. Sure. And, when I saw Wayne Shorter Quartet uh, when they came through Atlanta in uh, you know two thousand seven or two thousand eight, um, Danilo Perez was playing with Wayne Shorter, and he you know, yeah. open the piano. I, he actually at one point started um, crushing a plastic water bottle in the microphone and whistling. I remember. I really? Like, That's pretty cool. <laughs> I, it reminds me of a, uh, I saw Medeski Martin and Wood and Billy Martin was like dropping bags of rocks on the sure. drums and everything. And I was like, but, this um, dude is way hipper than, oh, than anyone else. Awesome. Oh my goodness. Um, but, but like there, actually that's kind of a classical music thing. I think like it, it's rooted in prepared piano, which is like, mm -hmm. uh, John Cage used to do that. Um, you know, you, you, it comes with like a blueprint. You have to specifically like tape a washer <laughs> to this key, put a ping pong ball on this one, <laughs> you know, put silly putty wherever. And then, uh, is that just, it's kind of like transforming the piano into a drum set kind of because suddenly right. like 
E4 is a snare. <laughs> right. And, uh, but what was yeah. the history behind it? Was it just to augment sound, I guess? Yeah, I think it was, the you know, electronics hadn't quite caught up. It's one of those quantum things where, you know, music was headed in this direction, even right. though the computers weren't there. And so it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. he was kind of designing an analog synth. Hmm. That's an inter- it's super interesting that I mean, it, not only not only the fact that like that uh, this or just the idea that that people figure out different ways to manipulate something that's already amazing. And then you say, oh, my God, I never even thought about, you know, I never even thought that you could do this thing or do that thing or or augment this sound. And it's always cre- it's always amazing to me to see the creativity that goes into like getting different sounds out of instruments or, or augmenting it in a certain way. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I feel like one of the first things a drummer learns is um, if you take your wallet out and put it on your snare drum, like (laughs) you can get it to set, you know, take the high overtones out and get a little more smack in there. That's the exact same thing. Yep. Yep. I remember when I've first learned to hit the stick parallel to the cymbal and it just, and it just bell, it's just a bell noise Mm -hmm. and the cymbal doesn't move. And I thought it was the most amazing thing in the world. It's actually your stick resonating. The stick, I've noticed if you do that with different sticks of different sizes, it sounds different because that's the actual thing that's resonating more than the, the cymbal's just getting a little, little taste. Yeah, it is amazing. very crisp. Um, I'd ask, it is very crisp. (laughs) I, I I was a, the reason why I asked about the violin um, is because it's such I think anyway it's such a hard instrument to play and at four it I feel like you know like I can't get my you know when my nephew was four like I couldn't even get him to sit in a chair let alone be focused enough to play a violin. I think there was just something um, you know I, I was not immediately awesome at all, uh, but I think there was something. <laughs> Even from immediately, even that young, I think there was something like um, uh, there's something about the challenge of playing it that uh, immediately drew me in. Uh, kind of like uh, one of those games with like the hook on a string, the circle on a string, and you're trying to swing it onto the hook. And like some, yeah. some people will just sit there, you know, that that first taste. It's like, oh, I'm I'm not leaving till I get this right. I think mm-hmm. it was similar for me mm-hmm. with violin. Um, actually, I think that's similar with me on any instrument I try to pick up where. Um, I, I'm just pretty driven to play something as trivial, trivial as Mary had a little lamb or just scales. Right. And, um, yeah. Uh, until I've figured out all 12 notes, uh, I don't know, maybe it's an mm-hmm. OCD thing. Like <laughs> it's like a tick or something. I, I think I have it too. I've been, I have this weird, I guess maybe I've been like blessed with this weird thing where I can pick up an instrument and I can play something on it to where it sounds, it sounds good enough to where it's not ridiculously horrible and it'll like hold my interest enough that I can like expect, cause I play enough that I'm like, Oh, it doesn't hurt my ears. It's horrible, but it doesn't hurt my ears. And so I'm at least like getting a taste of the, the sound that could possibly come out of this thing. So it'll hold my interest longer and then I can actually put the time in to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we talked about free play last time. There's a book called free play mm-hmm. that, um, inspired me a lot and uh there's there's a chapter in there where the uh the author is talking about how he's trying to learn violin as an adult but he lives in a very small multi-bedroom apartment and the walls are thin and his roommates Mm -hmm. hate the sound of him practicing violin so it forced him to practice not only slowly but quietly he had to constantly be playing you know pianissimo and yeah that's like even harder to control and something about that helped him uh, get to the, he, he, he ended up being grateful for that part of the, uh, 
of his journey on the instrument because then he found he had yeah. command of playing very quietly. It's interesting where where we have these things that put constraints on what we have to do or what we have to play or the way that we have to practice, like you had just mentioned. And down the road, it turns out that that was some blessing in disguise that or 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 you know helped us develop some skill that we did we probably wouldn't have developed had it not been for these constraints that we'd put on ourselves. Totally, totally. Um, Alt J is a band that you know I love those guys, and um, through talking with them and uh, you know, reading up, uh, part of what got them their awesome, unique sound was that at uni, when they were in college, um, the cymbals were too loud and they kept getting uh, noise complaints. So they just stopped huh. playing with cymbals and like that ended up being a big part of their sound. Um, right. So right. yeah, I think, you know, th- through musical limitations comes musical growth. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Django Reinhardt, you know, was still ripping it, even though he didn't have really the use of his fourth or fifth finger on that hand towards the end. And he, you know, through that limitation could still totally express himself. And if anything, gave him a unique voice. Yeah, I think that's the that's the key. It's like it it gives us this unique voice if we can restrain ourselves and say, okay, how music, how musically can we compose inside of this box? Totally. And for a lot of musicians, I think that's basically the whole goal is just to find your unique voice. Um, everyone's got one, you know, no, no two musicians are going to tackle the same problem identically. And, um, that journey of finding that voice, I usually leads through, uh, you know, a lot of parts where you were struggling or had some limitation in some way. And then you kind of got your musical superpower through that. Right. Well, you had mentioned before, you feel like music is one big problem that you're trying to solve. Sure. I mean, I, yeah, I think of it very much in a puzzle solving way or, um, I don't know. Maybe it's because one of the first forms of music I, I was introduced to was variations. You know, variations is a thing in early mm-hmm. classical music where you're presented with a theme and then the whole goal is how far how far away from this can you take it and still have it be that theme. And right. um, yeah, I, I just think, uh, you know, some of my favorite compositions have been when I basically set rules at the beginning for myself purely mm-hmm. as a as a form of inspiration because trying mm-hmm. to write trying to write something within any set of rules you give yourself is going to affect it and um right. sometimes that's the the fun of it do you use that in the practice room as well absolutely limiting yourself absolutely or um uh there there's a you know considered the drummer's bible the book syncopation um mm-hmm. there's a, a there there's a couple of pages in there where it's just quarter notes and eighth notes in random variations. And, um, one of the best things my, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to have wonderful, wonderful drum teachers my entire ride. And, uh, one of the things I learned from my hometown teacher, Billy Dennett's, but then also from Jackie Santos at Berkeley, because this is a Alan Dawson thing, you know, one of the great drum educators of all time, Tony Williams, teacher, Alan Dawson is you, mm-hmm set rules for the rest of your limbs, whether it's all three of them or just two. And then you choose one limb that's just going to be playing the constant string of variations. And then all your other, that's the variable. And then the control was all your other limbs. So whether it's just like kick, snare, kick, snare, and then with your right hand playing a syncopated pattern on the ride or the hi-hat, or maybe, maybe this is your bass drum, you know? And, and, um, 
I think I think that's totally creating a list of problems or or restraints on myself uh, for right. practicing purposes. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of the New Breed book too, of how that how his whole system is structured, where it's like here's the here's the constant, here's the variable. Uh, but it puts, you know, you, you put these limitations on yourself and, and you, because then you can start messing around with all the other stuff that goes inside of it, all the dynamics and, and, and orchestration and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that's where, to me, that's totally, where or it, as simple as something that drummers learn from a very early age, which is flip the sticking now do it left hand, you know, I'm right-handed. So in general, I do right, right hand lead and my right hand stronger than my left. I'm always working on my left hand, trying mm-hmm. to get it. And the, you know, that's the weakest link. The, the stronger I get my left hand, the better overall I am, I've, I've found. Um, just because yeah. that, that, that's the, the squeaky wheel, so to speak. And, um, right. you know, just flipping, le- doing left-hand lead on your rudiments is, in essence... It's an eye-opener. Yeah, like creating a new list of restraints in order to get stronger. Yeah. If you're right-handed and you think your left hand's strong, brush your teeth with your left hand and tell me how <laughs> you feel. It's like you feel like a child. Yeah, it's so. I'll try that. I'll try that later. (laughs) I'll do that post lunch. Yeah, there you go. Um, So, growing up, you although your your parents are musicians, not professional musicians. Were you planning on being a professional musician, or were you planning going down another route? Uh, Me being so, I'm very lucky. My parents were always very supportive of me doing music and whenever the idea of becoming a professional musician had come up, they did not have a knee jerk reaction of being like, no, um, they were, they would, they were very supportive, but they were also like practical and they were, they, they raised me to have a backup plan, so to speak. You know, it, it was, it was not lost right. on me that there are so many amazing musicians in the world that could not be successful professional musicians um and mm-hmm. you know there's a component of luck so just going into it with the with the attitude of I, I need to work as hard as i can i need to have a good attitude when i'm struggling with something and like put myself in those uncomfortable situations and i also need to accept i might do everything right and there, there's just not a career here um but i you know, i knew that yeah. music was my passion and it was the thing that got me out of bed in the morning and the thing that drove me and mm-hmm. gave me the most joy of uh, anything else. So I knew that even if I wasn't going to be a professional musician, I wanted to do something in music. And I think that's why Berkeley's program in particular was so attractive to me because, you know, mm-hmm. Berkeley is uh, not a traditional conservatory. It's much more of a music technical school. Um, you can go in specifically to learn to be an engineer. You can do music business. You know, you it, everyone needed to do music on an instrument a little bit but like there were it was it was a you know and it's also 4000 kids at the time I'm going as opposed right, to right. hundreds so um they have a film scoring department at Berkeley I knew that I I by the time I was at the end of high school I knew film scoring was in my mind the perfect music job because I I like movies but I also like composing and not necessarily in one genre and being a professional film scorer would allow me to compose anything in the entire gambit of music, uh, you know, month to month, and also would be um, have a lot of problem solving in it, you know, some, something I love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
if you've written a bunch of music for the scene and then they're like, actually, we cut four seconds. <laughs> you're like, well, how am I going to solve this? Right. Like, I, I kind of love that. Uh, I love that kind of thing. Right. Uh, sorry, go ahead. How competitive is is it to be a film score? Uh, pretty competitive. Pretty competitive. I mean, back then. I, I, I mean, now, now I feel like there's more and more content and more and more of an... I feel like it's probably less competitive now because uh, there's just more stuff being made. And, you know, I, I mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily of the attitude, like, I need to be doing Hollywood movies or nothing. You know, I was always, you know, I love going to Sundance and see, I got to go one year in college with my older brother and see a bunch Amazing. of, you know, indie movies. You know, half of them I thought were brilliant. Half of them I was like, that wasn't really for me, but I also think that was really cool. <laughs> like that movie existed. It had music. <laughs> Someone had to do that. Um even if I wasn't going right? to be, you know, uh, the scorer, even if I was just the uh, orchestrator or something, maybe I work, you know, that was something in the, in the back of my mind I could do is I could work for someone like Hans Zimmer, like, and, and I would have been so mm-hmm. super happy. You know, I still, you know, we, have, I, we got to go into remote control as Imagine Dragons and work with Hans Zimmer, which for me was like a dream come true. Uh, well, working with Steve Jablonski, awesome. uh, but Hans Zimmer was there hanging out and, you know, He's awesome. Steve is actually uh, also one of my film scoring heroes, by the way. Um, hmm. But uh, but yeah, the the idea that there were jobs in this, and I could go to Berkeley and do this. Uh, but but to go back to your question, I knew there was no guarantee. So in the back of my mind, um, and and with my parents' uh, help, uh, we found this graduate program at Rensselaer, uh, which it would be in designing. Uh, studios. It's architectural acoustics. So it would be like d- specifically designing mm. spaces to have better acoustics coming into tune rooms. Uh, that was my backup plan. Right. So even if I had, you know, a miserable time at Berkeley and found out that I was the worst musician there and didn't have a shot, uh, I still wanted to do something involving music. So. Right. Right. That, uh, that was going to be my next question. Would it be if it wasn't composing or playing drums or physically playing where would you go from there would you want to work you already answered the question with with working in yeah, i would have studios, loved to but um, would you have wanted to go like into the into the business side or like the executive side of like working with a label or working with a management company or something like I, that i don't think i would have been drawn to that side of it i mean i that that side's fascinating um but you know i think i was more had leaning towards getting this graduate degree in architectural acoustics and then being brought in as a consultant on studios that are being built or when a school gymnasium needs to be converted into <laughs> a performance center and you know what's the cheapest way that's also problem solving we have a budget of eight thousand dollars and we need to f- make this auditorium not sound terrible like that's right. that's cool too um, and that, I, there's, right. there's a parallel universe where that's totally what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, talk to me about your time at, at Berkeley. What do you, what do you think was the, was the best that you got out of, out of that school and how, well, obviously, you know, it led to imagine dragons, but, um, what are some of the things that you learned at Berkeley that you feel are completely invaluable that, that have shaped your, yourself as a player? Uh, I feel so fortunate for, the Berkeley experience that I had. Um, I, I, I am a rarity. I did all four years and graduated, uh, which in Berkeley culture mm-hmm. now is, you know, 
becoming more standard. But Berkeley culture back in the day meant you were a failure or a rotten egg uh, because right. it, the quote unquote like – Well, one of these days you'll get yes. – you know, one of these days you'll make it. Don't worry. You'll get in a big man one of these days. I have faith. Uh, yeah, the culture used to be like Buddy Rich would come through and, and take the best horn players or the best rhythm section. So if you were left at the end of four years, that meant you were – you were damaged goods. Um, I say that very jokingly. <laughs> I always wonder why they did that. I always wonder why those guys came into Berkeley and took all the... Was it because they wanted like the new, freshest person coming out? Or were they like, oh, this guy's really good and I can pay him a little bit of money? I, I think it's, I think it's a, a little column A, a little column B. Um, you know, the, <laughs> I mean, there are students... It was a very humbling experience going to Berkeley. Like, um, there are yeah. some real monster players <laughs> at that school um i mean there's there's some students there that are that will blow your mind um so but i think that was a really important experience for me um coming in uh, i i actually did the five-week program at berkeley as a junior in high school um which is five oh, weeks cool. on campus uh while the summer semester is happening so there are actual students on campus and you you know seeing the students perform is very inspiring and I totally got my butt kicked mm -hmm. at that five week program. I mean, I went in thinking that I was the best drummer that I knew and I left being like, I could fill an ocean with the things I need to work on and <laughs> where do I even begin? Um, yep. But luckily I, I, uh, you know, I, I fortunately met Jackie Santos at that program who ended up being one of the two teachers I had at the school as a student. And I actually worked with them for those two years before I got there, which, you know, I'm so grateful for. Um, but, you know, when I got there, uh, uh, I purposely joined ensembles that I, I knew nothing about. Like I joined the country Western ensemble, not really knowing mm -hmm. any country music. And the professor, Mike Ide is awesome, awesome uh, pedal steel guitar player. And, um, you know, I, I learned a lot. Like I didn't know Hank Williams before that. And uh, I learned some, some music that right. I love that I'm very inspired by because of that. And um, kind of like what the rules, so to speak, of country drumming are from a very rudimental, at least if I'm thrown into a situation, have some idea of what to do now. Same thing with the Afro-Cuban ensemble. Right. Like I, I went in knowing Pattern A mm -hmm. in the book that I got at the Berkeley Bookstore the first day. Yeah. And um, <laughs> Victor Mendoza was the teacher who's, you know, an, an amazing musician. He's amazing. a monster. And... Um, I had a great time. And, uh, you know, by the end of that, I understood a lot more about kind of what makes Afro-Cuban music specific. What are the beats that, you know, it, it's not about the two and the four. It's about the one and the three. And mm -hmm. like the one, yeah. the, studying a lot of jazz, like playing one is something you're not supposed to do. But then in Afro-Cuban, it's like absolutely a part of it. And, um, it was great, yeah. and, and not that I'm the not that I'm a great Afro-Cuban drummer now or anything, but I learned so much by putting myself in those situations, um, and uh, I think it made me a lot more confident. Um, I was blessed to get to work with uh, the amazing Hal Crook while I was there, do his ensemble a few times. Mm -hmm. uh, he's an amazing jazz educator, and uh, he has you know influenced the way I compose, influenced the way I think about improvising the way I can think, analyze a solo. Um, it was kind of like, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to make a sports analogy, but like it was talking to Hal. it was like, there was a whole 
uh, pl there, were, there were things going on within the music, between the musicians that I had been unaware of the entire time. And it just opened up a whole new world about right. like what a musician's role is. And um, he, he would always say, you're supposed to be a team full of captains. Like every, every one of you, you are a team. You're all mm -hmm. working together. But each one of you should be able to make a decision that everyone else can follow. And everyone else needs to constantly be listening to each other and respect each other enough to go with them when that happens. And I mean, I learned, right. I learned so much from him. I had Ian Froman as my uh, other drum teacher when I was up there uh, for private instruction and Ian's amazing and, you know, um, opened mm -hmm. up a whole new world about balance. You know, I, I was unaware of how unbalanced my drumming was when I went into lessons with Ian and, right, right, um, right. you know, I, it went from play, play the notes, uh, we, you know, I'd play them just as loud as I could to suddenly being aware like <laughs> uh you know my ride cymbal should be louder than my bass drum <laughs> i should be able to play my bass drum quietly right. so quietly that you kind of feel it and don't hear it like oh that's a texture i wasn't using yeah um so isn't there a joke around that it's like dynamics <laughs> i'm playing as loud as i can <laughs> like that <laughs> so i am playing dynamic um <laughs> Yeah, that actually became, <laughs> yeah. that went from something that I felt like I was really bad at to feeling like it was one of my biggest strengths by the end of Berkeley, um, where I felt like there were plenty of other drummers at the school who could swing harder than me, who could play faster than me, um, who could take better solos, but nobody was going to be able to play quieter than me. My quietest quiet was going to be way lower than anyone else's, and I was going to be known nice. as the guy that soloists want to play with because I'm never going to drown them out. And I'm always going to take their volume yeah. level and kind of go, and if they go higher, I'm going to go with them. But as soon as they come down, I'm going to immediately duck down with them. And I felt like very confident that that mm -hmm. was my thing, so to speak. One line in the Dream Symbol family that I think is really cool is the Dark Matter family. They have the Flat Earth, the Moon Ride, and the Dark Matter Energy. And although they're all made a little bit differently, they all involve the Dark Matter process. And this is really cool. Check this out. They take a symbol that is already finished and then put it back in the oven, hand hammer it, and then shock it with cold water, and then put it back in the oven. And what happens is the ash and the soot from the oven are fused to the top layer of the metal, which give it this really, really unique sound. And you know what? I want to let you hear exactly what this process does to a symbol. Check them out. To learn more about Dream Symbols, their Dark Matter line, and all their great products, be sure to check out dreamsymbols.com. So I've been checking out the new Sonar SQ-1s, and let me tell you, these drums are sick. They're made out of birch, all right? Why, you ask? Because birch has balanced low, mid, and high ranges. So they sound really, really good in the recording studio, plus they sound great live. Now, this is some really cool stuff. They have a sound stabilizer system, and it's actually based on concepts applied in the automotive industry, and it's rubber to metal so that you're getting complete isolation from the shell. Not only that, the colors that they come in also resemble high-end automobiles, so they're all matte lacquer finishes. These kits are insane, and not only that, they sound amazing. To learn more about the SQ-1 series, go to sonar.com. 
I think it's a very, very underrated skill to be able to it's play hard. quietly. And it gives you like, first of all, it gives you so much head, so much more headroom, but it, it's so hard. It's, I went and got lessons from Scott Amendola a couple years ago and we're playing and, and I don't know if you know, Scott, but he is like one of the greatest humans in the world. And he's, he's the person that when you're talking, you can tell he's genuinely listening to every word that you're saying. And so he's like, yeah, let's, you know, let's just play a little bit. And I play and he just kind of looks at me and goes, man, you, you, you play really loud. You play really loud. And I was like, I do, you know, I didn't, I didn't think I was. And then uh, for about six months, I would record myself with an iPhone right next to me. And if it didn't clip mission accomplished, and if it clipped and if it was distorted, then I'm still playing too loud. And man, yeah, you'll talk about a humbling experience. Yeah, that was, that was a big thing. Hal um, taught me because one of part of Hal's lessons is that you would uh, record it and like listen back and analyze yourself. And that was a level of uh, getting to know myself musically that I had not <laughs> gotten to um, like right. seeing your own, uh, like uh, the, the litter under the carpet, so to speak. Um, because, you know, at, where a drummer sits, we almost have the worst perspective to hear ourselves. Um, our cymbals kind of go back mm-hmm. at our ears, but basically every drum we're hitting, the bass drums literally in front of us and aimed away from us, you know? So, um, not to mention yeah. there's a big part of drum culture where, I mean, obviously ear, ear, hearing protection is very important for practicing drums. Everyone should absolutely use hearing protection, but I think also not using hearing protection for a portion of your practicing where you're specifically not going to play loud and damage your ears is really important because I used really thick hearing protection when I practiced for years and it wasn't until later that someone pointed out to me, that's why you're playing so loud. <laughs> it's like, cause I can't hear myself. So of course I'm playing loud. Right. Um, right. And so, so once again, I'm not, I, I, I am not anti hearing protection. I think hearing protection is very important, but I also think part of your daily practice should be like five minutes, no hearing protection where you don't play louder than mezzo forte, you know, or maybe even quieter. Maybe specifically work on playing quiet, but without your, without anything, so you can really try to hear yourself. And absolutely put a recording device on the opposite end of the room as you, you know, 10, 15 feet back, and try to hear what it sounds like for an, a potential mm-hmm. audience member. And then hear how different the balance of your playing sounds from that, from over there. And that's something Hal taught me, and it's super useful, super useful for my playing. I felt much. Yeah, I felt much I better about like playing in clubs, uh, especially when I'd go to New York or sit in at mm-hmm. you know Fat Cat session or Smalls, and um, even getting to gig right. there a couple times when I lived in New York, um, you know, or playing a room like the Fifty Five Bar. Man, I saw a p- picture of the Fifty Five Bar with the mm-hmm. gates closed, um, and it it broke my heart, man. <clears throat> I cannot believe, I cannot it's believe. So it. sad. Such a special place. The last time I was there, I saw Keith Carlock with Wayne Krantz and James Genius um, and Nate. Uh, no, Nate. Um, I can't think of oh, it. Wow. Nate Wood was playing bass, and and because he'll like split between you know he plays bass and plays drums and I don't, he the guy does everything so whatever I think he should just retire and give us all a chance. But uh, but uh, yeah, it was Wayne Krantz, Keith Carlock, and Nate Wood, and it was just like. It was just a wall of sound, but it was so 
it was so amazing that there was like energy dripping wow. out of the walls. You know, like that bar that. That's funny. The last time just, I was there, I saw Wayne Krantz with Keith Carlock, but it was James Genus. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it really? Was, it was. <laughs> we were randomly in New York, and nice. I was like, "We're only a block away. I'm just going to poke my head in and see who's there." I was like, "We're staying." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're not. We're not. Whatever we were doing, it's canceled. <laughs> yeah. Keith, you'd always run into someone what cool a, what there. A, you know, amazing drummer. And you talk about, we were talking about earlier about finding your voice. That's someone who would like, he totally. sounds like Keith Carlock. It's funny. My, uh, my hometown drum teacher, Billy Dennett's really wanted me to go do, to do the North Texas program. And, uh, anytime, anytime, uh, you know, right. uh, Keith, Keith Carlock to me is like, represents like the North, the North Texas, like drum thing. Cause <laughs> yeah. they, they work hard. That, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a, cult, a culture of musicianship where they work really hard. Exactly. Ed Sof, man, that dude like pumped out professional music. I mean, it, Keith Carlock, um, uh, Rich Redman, Jason Sutter, um, Mark uh, Shulman, uh, I'm missing what Jim Riley, like all these guys have all, are all totally. in major bands, you know, and they all went to North Texas. Yep, they all studied under did, Ed Sof. They, at least they did not have a film scoring program. So I was like, the only three schools oh, they didn't? that I could find when I was when I was uh, applying for schools uh, was USC, Thornton School of Music, uh, Miami, uh, Frost <laughs> School mm-hmm. of Music, and then Berkeley. And um, yeah. I yeah. I did early admission to Berkeley like the first month of my senior year of high school. I did a rolling admission. I got in, and then I was like, I am. Mm-hmm. Gonna start practicing a lot more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's amazing how even you know, like I went to school. I graduated in '99 and or graduated high school in '99. I was looking for music performance and music business, and there were two schools in the country that had both: University of Miami and Berkeley, and that was it. They were the only two. I went to neither of them, but they those are the only two. I have good friends that went to Miami. I've I uh, I actually played a couple senior recitals um down at university of miami and i mean that that's a great school too and and though you know a lot of the musicians i knew from there have moved to new york and are, mm-hmm. they're doing great and yeah um it was it was very going to a music school uh and then like visiting my you know friends from home who are not at music school and being like this is what your college experience is like was like very <laughs> <laughs> very earth shattering yeah uh, so i i think the, the point of me saying that is I, I think I got an extra like camaraderie. Like it meant more visiting the other music schools with the other like people my age, like, mm-hmm. and just seeing what those people are up to yeah. and um, the difference between our programs. You know? Right. Well, thankfully you ended up going to Berkeley because that's how long, you know, down the road you ended up with Imagine Dragons. Talk about how that started. Yes. That started with the Guitar Lab, right? That's sort of the catalyst behind it. It was all. the infamous Eclectic Electrics. I like it. Taught by the incredible Mark White. Um, so one of my roommates was a uh, – one, one of my randomly assigned roommates freshman year – is a guitar player, and uh, he said his friend Ben was going to come out the next semester, someone that he had gone to the junior college in uh, Santa Rosa with uh, before going to Berkeley. There was a a Berkeley grad who runs the program out there, Bennett, 
Bennett Freeman, I believe his name is, who is incredible at music educator. You know, the, that program is incredible mm-hmm. and prepares a lot of students to go to Berkeley. Um, so that, uh, ben, by the way, Ben is Ben McKee, bass player of Imagine mm-hmm. Dragons. So we all got a house together our sophomore year off campus in Alston. And uh, Alston is, you know, just uh, a 30 minute train ride on the B line to Berkeley on the public transit in Boston. And uh, one, so, so our other roommate, uh, he got assigned this guitar lab. Now, what's a guitar lab? Uh, I don't know if other schools have guitar labs. Um, guitar labs are, uh, at, when I was a student at Berkeley, one in four students was a guitar major. There were a thousand guitar students of 4,000 students. So in order to help give the students the best education they can, they have something called guitar labs where there are five guitar players and then they just need a bass player and a drummer for the lab. And then you can work on different musical scenarios, but from a guitar centric angle. Uh, right. And five guitar players uh, in a so, room. <laughs> so why, why as a drummer <laughs> and why as a bass player were me and Ben interested in doing this? Well, a Mark is so cool. He's like the man, uh, giant heart, incredible guitar player. He's the guy that Boston pops will hire to like sight read something perfectly, like incredible musician, incredible guitar player. Um, and he had such a deep, not like, it, it was a culture. Right. It was something that we just wanted to be a part of. We we went in being like, maybe we'll do this one semester. We did it six semesters. Wow. Um, so uh, one of the other guitar players. Uh, so sorry. What 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 do we do in this lab? There's five guitar players. Well, Mark would take a Bill Evans piano solo and then transcribe it out and arrange it for five electric guitars, where each guitar is one of Bill Evans's fingers. <laughs> and it's like a specific piano solo and it teaches everyone that they have to play dynamically and they have to listen to each other. Um, you know, playing in a, in a guitar section is not something a lot of guitar players get to do. Right. It was, it was really fascinating. That is pretty cool. Um, or it would be a Matheny and Schofield arrangement um, for everyone to do. And one of the reasons I really love doing this is I, I would, it gave me an opportunity to practice in a, in a band setting, um, things as a drummer. Like it gave me my own little lab to try, you know, um, if I want to make this section big, maybe I'll do, you know, a a six bar fill. Maybe I'll, I'll like get something going like for the entire section and see if that pushes the soloist. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll get quieter and then get loud. You know, it it was, it was so useful for me. Um, Well, one of the other guitar players in this lab was Wayne Sermon, who is the guitar player from Imagine Dragons. So me, Ben and Wayne were in this lab for years together um, because it was a great way to get credit. And, um, you know, like I said, it was, it was a great experience. Uh, We we weren't expecting to join a band together. Um, Well, Wayne graduated and he moved back home and he met Dan and they started the band and they needed a bass player. They they actually already had a drummer, uh, but they needed a bass player. So Ben dropped out of Berkeley with four credits left and moved to Las Vegas on a whim um, having never been there before, but that's how much we trusted Wayne. Uh, Wayne's Wayne's musicianship's impeccable. You know, um, he was always one of the best soloists in that uh, in that lab. He, right. You know, if there was a really hard song, he'd be like, "Okay," and Wayne's gonna solo on this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so and everyone else is like, "Ooh, thank God!" <laughs> the fact that Wayne was taking this so seriously just told Ben all he needed to know. So he moved out and joined, and um, I moved to New York for two and a half years doing my own jazz stuff, doing singer songwriter gigs. I got mm-hmm. really good at uh, writing myself drum charts for a song to the point that I could have a singer songwriter play me the song. And by the end of listening to it once, I would have myself an entire roadmap and be ready to do the show. Like super valuable uh, skill. Yeah. Su- super grateful for my New York experiences. Um, but uh, I, I ended up playing a South by Southwest with my friend, Michael Feinberg down at the elephant room. Um, at the same time that Imagine Dragons was playing. So I ended up getting to meet up and see the guys um and i was of course blown away and i was like wow this is this is great and uh you know the the crowds are loving it and that you know obviously it was a very different playing experience than uh playing jazz right and uh you know i made it i made it clear that it was something i was interested in if the opportunity ever arose and when the opportunity arose i immediately put all my stuff in storage and moved to los angeles uh Hmm. to join the band and it was like three or four weeks later that we got signed to Kid in the Corner at Interscope. So, wow. Um, what size venue were the, you playing when you guys when you joined? When when I joined, we um, we were playing you know clubs, um, hundred hundred and fifty cap rooms. Right. Generally, we were doing college gigs. We had a airport shuttle van we converted into a touring vehicle. We called the Dragon Wagon. Um, and it just fit all the, all the drums and the amps and the gear and then right, everyone right. could sit. Um, and you know, you, it's like a big sail. It catches wind. <laughs> You'll have to like <laughs> yeah. steer to the left to stay straight. It's one of those. Um, and we would drive ourselves all over between Los Angeles and Vegas and, uh, Utah. And we did a lot of call, like college shows would sometimes be big. I remember one time we did a college show around in, in the early days that was, you know, um, I think a thousand students. Maybe, right. maybe, maybe a little more. We, we, you know, we filled up the quad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember yeah. a speaker fell in a fountain and it was like, don't jump in the fountain to get the speaker, <laughs> please. Uh, good times. Um, but yeah, we, it, it, it was kind of like the, the back of the room just quickly was flying backwards and suddenly right. there were just more and more people. And then consequently, you that, you I'm getting that pushed further and further back too. It's kind of like a push pull in a movie. Say that again. I cut you off. It's kind of like a like a push pull, like in a movie when you pull the camera back while you zoom in. Right. So the main character is in the middle, but then the back it looks like the back of the the background is just flying backwards. It's called yeah. a push pull. Um, that's what it felt like because the back of the room just kept getting <laughs> pushed backwards, and more and more people were were in the room, and you were getting wild. further away from the crowd. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, and then like. A drum riser, like that was a big moment. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm playing drums on a drum riser now. <laughs> what was? What do you attribute the the rapid growth to? Was it radio play? I think it was uh, a tipping point of sorts. You know, those years that I wasn't there, the band was you know grinding tooth and nail, playing you know six days a week, five hour mm-hmm. gigs on the strip of Las Vegas. Um, you know, just really hustling. And building a fan base, grassroots style from the, from the ground up, and that mm-hmm. takes time. 
And um, there were so many little breaks along the way that like I, I, I was blessed to come in just right at that tipping point. Right. Um, the band had just moved from Las Vegas to Los Angeles um, and was, you know, th- there had been label offers, but the band had been turning them down because they weren't uh, where they needed to be. Mm-hmm. And it looked like we were maybe finally going to, it looked like the band was going to get to the point where it was going to get somewhere with a label to the point that the band had just moved to Los Angeles. So it was, it was a big, uh, you know, risky, crazy point, but, um, it all worked out amazingly. <laughs> how, how was the learning curve from going from, you know, 150 cap rooms to two to 3000 to, you know, five to 10,000 to 25,000, you know, it was hard. From, it was hard from a drummer. You know, and then also from like an organizational standpoint of like going from van to bus to routing tours and all that kind of stuff. Like I know you have help with that, but, but what was the learning curve? Well, organizationally, I will say it was the opposite. It got easier and easier because at the beginning it was just right. us. You know, we were our own tour managers. I remember when we first got a tour manager, it was like, wow, <laughs> someone else is going to tell me where to go to sleep and what to do. This is amazing. Right. How did you pick um, your tour manager? But, uh, did, did it go through the label or did you guys find someone to do it? So yeah, our first tour manager was a tour manager slash front of house engineer because at that time it was like, we had to get to mm-hmm. the uh, you know, festival or whatever and get there in time. And then also, uh, it, was, it was around the time we needed a consistent front of house mix. So that, that was a big, that was a big uh, part of uh, my learning curve, so to speak, of dealing with the transition from a club to a festival with you know, thousands of people mm-hmm. or you know, eventually an arena with, you know, tens of thousands of people. Um, the biggest, the hardest part for me was I had learned early on, like, especially from teachers like Jackie, uh, like part of what makes, uh, like a drummer's pocket, you know, like really driving into the, the two and the right. four, the backbeat, like really putting a crack into the snare, um, and really giving it that extra muscle, and um, part of that whole Hal Crook thing of putting, you know, recording yourself playing and being very aware of your dynamics. Well, a lot of that kind of goes out the window when you start playing bigger rooms because the room itself is now right. too big, no matter how hard I crack the snare to fill. And that's the problem. Like, if the power <laughs> goes out while I'm playing, it will suddenly sound like a, a rinky dink little tiny drum set to the people in the back. Um, which, which is hard to wrap your head around when you're trying to play dynamically, right? So there's a lot of trust there. And the fact that we have an engineer like Scott, who I trust so much mm-hmm. to make the drums and all the sounds sound good, um, and just kind of learning to trust the mics and the PA uh, to carry that sound a little further. And you learn that suddenly when you're not playing a 45 minute set anymore, when you have a 90 minute set, maybe don't hit the snare drum as hard as you can the whole time. Suddenly endurance (laughs) becomes a part of it. It becomes a boxing match instead of a sprint. Um, And yeah, those were all hard lessons. You know, uh, there were, there's, there's been festivals where I hurt my thumb, like playing where I got so excited that the crowd was so big Mm -hmm. and I, um, 
I held the stick wrong and, you know, got a thumb bruise and then had to have play through, yeah. through that, you know, that's, that's a learning experience too. What have you done or how have you managed to stay humble all these years through this? Like you get on this rocket ship and you take off and the next thing you know, you're playing in arenas and you're not just like some hired gun that's like jumping from tour to tour. And you're used to like, this is a thing that you guys built together. So I, to me, I, I always wanted to be in a band that we grew together versus joining something that was already at the top. Um, so there's got to be a sense of pride there and you know what you went through to build this whole thing. But how do you keep all that from going to your head? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think part of what keeps me grounded is staying busy with trying to stay in touch with all the musicians I know uh and trying to continue to put myself mm -hmm. in humbling positions so to speak you know um all i have to do to to humble myself is try to <laughs> play right. some you know play some jazz or something when i'm completely out of practice um uh it's it's crazy how fast all that leaves your leaves your playing especially when you're filling it with a different type of playing um not to mention uh you know i've really especially these last few years, been fortunate enough to find some mm -hmm. film scoring opportunities that excite me and that, you know, trying to musically problem solve on a scale right, that right. big is very humbling. <laughs> uh, and, you know, usually you're working with directors who, uh, it would be rare in the film scoring industry to write music and have the director 100% <laughs> of the time be like, that's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of times where it's yeah. A lot of times it's trying to uh, decipher the ineffable, you know, sometimes the director will say he wants it mm -hmm. to be purple and you have to figure out what that means. Um, so I, th I think experiences like that are very humbling for me. Um, and uh, I've also, you know, I, I'm a multi-instrumentalist too. I mean, I'm, I'm right. Drums is the instrument I have the most training on and the instrument I'm most proficient at, but you know, I still love, trying to play other instruments. I've been teaching myself trumpet. Um, I mean, I played trumpet in middle school, but I never had a private teacher. And um, this last world tour we did, I brought a trumpet on the That's road awesome. and I've, I've continued practicing that thing. And, and it takes me back to that book I was talking about earlier, Free Play, and the chapters about practicing the violin, you know, practicing the trumpet really quietly in a hotel room, knowing that the person <laughs> right. next to you is going to kill you <laughs> if you play too loud. <laughs> I, I, you know, it takes me right back. And uh, trumpet's really hard, <laughs> and I sound very bad at it most of the time. So it's very humbling. Yeah, anytime you're feeling uh, high and muddy, you can just uh, you can just grab the trumpet, and you know, then you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, or, or I'll try to write some lyrics, and then I'll be like, that's right, right, right. <laughs> humble. I uh, different situation, but I was at a Super Bowl party, and I think I told you this story, but uh, I was at I was at a Super Bowl party, and I get talking to this older gentleman, and he says, oh, what do you do? And I'm all you know, well, I work in, I work in the music business and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what about you? And he's like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a developer and I own the Miami dolphins. And I was like, Oh, and he's the biggest <laughs> developer in the world. He's worth $7.5 billion and owns the Miami dolphins. And I was like, yeah, with a B and I'm like, Oh, okay. Hi. Very, very nice to meet you. Sorry. Yeah. But, but how quietly can he play the violin? Exactly. Exactly. I should have asked him. I should have, do you happen to play violin? Um, so obviously you're, if so, 
How quiet? Yeah, yeah how quiet? Yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously you're not on the road right now uh, due to the pandemic and everything. But what are the plans? What plans do you have for the rest of the year, 2021? Whether it be with Imagine Dragons or stuff that you're working on. And I want to admit, where can people find all of that information? Because I feel like you always have some. You always got a bunch of stuff going on. And I want to make sure that people can find all of that stuff. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I just finished uh, a film score, an original film score uh, for a movie I must shroud in mystery because they have not released it yet. And they have asked me not to reveal what the movie is. So I have a very mysterious original film score I've just released. Uh, and I've already started work on another. Um, I actually have a couple film scoring projects coming up this year. I'm super excited about Awesome. Uh, but besides that, uh, the band has been in a studio and we have been recording. We are not done uh, at all with what we're doing, but we are working on LP5. Um, and I'm very excited about the stuff that we've done. The The pandemic has really thrown a wrench in all the, any solid plans I thought we had. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what our you know, we, we haven't finished a, but B I'm not sure what the release plans are. I'm not sure what the touring world looks like at this mm -hmm. time. Um, and it, we're not alone in that. You know, it's, it's, it is so hard out there. I, I really feel for my New York music. I mean, we talked about the 55 bar closing, but man, I, for all my New York friends who rely on their rent, you know, yep. for the gigs yep. and there's no gigs like that's so hard. And, uh, so, in, I mean, we're, we're not immune to that either. You know, uh, I feel so bad for everyone who works for, you know, works in touring, mm -hmm. even if they're not in the band itself. Right. There's so many people who are not able to do what they do right now. And, and, it's, and it's really tough. So that said, we are for sure going to get out there as, and release it as soon as we can and get to touring as soon as we can. Get back on but, the road as we're just possible. not sure what that is. Yeah. The interesting thing is with a band with a band like you guys that that's a, a bigger band, uh, you know, years ago, you would take two years and write an album and then release the record and all that kind of stuff, which in some small way, it's sort of giving you a little bit of that freedom to kind of hunker down and write an album because you can't tour. You know, there's no there's no if, you, if you're not working yes. on the album, you're not going to be doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the silver lining is. We certainly don't feel rushed. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Do another take. Good deal. Um, well, Daniel, I want to, one, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. But two, I want to say thank you for being on the podcast again, because as I mentioned earlier, we already did this interview and the whole thing got lost. I think the reason this interview was so awesome is because we, we had that practice interview. I like you your know? attitude. Back to all that talk about being in the shed. Yeah. You know? Well, it's always the joke. You record, you know, it's a, you get the perfect take and then they're like, all right, let's do it for real next time. You know? Exactly. Well, <laughs> we had to do that. So uh, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and, uh, you know, the humility and, and everything that you exude is something that, that I think all of us can learn from. So I appreciate that as well. And oh, so kind, man. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I really appreciate it. Of course. My pleasure. And uh, stay safe. And hopefully we'll see Imagine Dragons back on the road very soon. ASAP. There you have
you have it, the one and only Mr. Daniel Platzman. And please reach out to him on social media and just thank him for doing another episode with me because like i said we lost the first one so he sat down to have another conversation with me super generous with his time and i appreciate that and again you can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 585 if you like this podcast please rate it please review it if you dig this particular episode please let the guests know please let daniel know shoot him a message hey thanks so much for being on the podcast and other than that that's all i got so until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening and i'll be talking to you soon peace drummer's resource is produced by revoice media executive producer nick ruffini that's me edited by justin thomas video editing by tomas shannon and graphic design by Catherine wade for more music and entertainment podcasts be sure to check out revoicemedia.com